Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Central to the Portals project is the exploration of where the future appears. Today, we are exploring how the future reveals itself through creative and innovative business leaders. This is a fantastically disruptive and transformative time. Global institutions and many large businesses have lost credibility and are no longer trusted. So how can difficult social, environmental, and ecological challenges be solved? I'm here with three entrepreneurs who have worked on the cutting edge of solving difficult problems. Court Lorenzini was the founder of DocuSign, the global standard for electronic signatures. He has since advised and helped numerous new businesses and early-stage companies. Grant Canary is the CEO of DroneSeed, a company that restores resilient forests after wildfires and is making reforestation scalable to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. And Bryce Bennett is the CEO of Solo, a company that solves challenges created by the gig economy by empowering and supporting independent workers. We want to learn from their experience and insights. So Court, let me come first to you. You've started several companies and helped many new businesses. At the highest level, what is the journey from seeing a problem, coming up with an idea to solve that problem, to having a successful new business that address those concerns, those problems. All right. Well, Aviv, good morning. And Grant and Bryce, great to see you guys as always. Um, I'm going to start. There's a two answers there. Number one is as an entrepreneur, and you know, I'll certainly advise on that. And also, my career now has taken me more into the investor realm, so I can thoughtfully advise, you know, consider that as well. Entrepreneurially, you know, I look at entrepreneurs, particularly founder-inclined people, like modern-day superheroes, right? They are the people that are responsible for taking on the biggest challenges with the longest, toughest odds, overcoming incredible obstacles, and if and when they're successful, they're likely to change the world. And so, new businesses to me are sort of the one of the core engines for positive change in the world. And sponsoring entrepreneurship and founders to just keep trying new things. And so both as a founder myself many times over and, and you know learned a lot, now I get to turn my opportunities to supporting Grant and Bryce and the folks like them who are building the future. And you know as an investor, for me, my investor thesis has much more to do with, is the thing I'm investing in going to positively impact society you know one, two, three decades from now? then I'm interested, right? Those are the things to me that need funding, that need support, that need all of us to pay attention to. So I'm really excited to kind of explore with you sort of how that goes together. So you're really embracing into your impact investing, the Iroquois frame of mind. You're thinking few generations into the future, which is beautiful. So say a little more about what is it that you're looking at when you are looking at an opportunity that somebody comes to you? How do you decide this is truly something that you're excited to invest, support, advise? Well, if I take the framework of, is it going to positively impact society, you know, a decade or more from now or within that time frame, it's easier to actually respond to the things that I don't or that I will turn away from, right? So what that does is it gives me a framework to say no to more classically fundable projects like, oh, the next generation of efficiency in business is interesting financially, probably very lucrative, and maybe a huge win or success, but it's not for me based on that thesis. Likewise, you know, the next social network or, you know, hipster camera app, or those are definitely things that I will quickly know that are not for me. And, And as an investor, you're, you know, you're faced with a lot of opportunity all the time. People always are looking for capital. 
and being able to understand your guidelines to say no with conviction and purpose and understand and when to dig in deeper. So that's how I say no. My yeses come more for based on scale of impact. So I look at the impact and if it's only going to impact a few people or a small region or what have you, I am, again, less excited. The thing I love about both Drone Seed and Solo is that they have enormous societal impact potential. And for millions upon millions, or in some cases, tens of millions, in Grant's case, perhaps even billions of people. So, you know, we have opportunities in as investors and entrepreneurs to really think big. And I love the way these guys think. Thank you. So with that, Grant, let me come to you. How would you tell the backstory and the inspiration for Dromsid? Yeah. I mean, I think my journey I've shared in the past, which is very much a like, look, everything I've done has been in sustainability with wind turbines and Festus, with, with insect protein and converting it into converting food waste into how do we make farmed fish more sustainable, utilizing a waste product and really want to make a dent more specifically on atmospheric emissions either eliminating them at the source or capturing them and um, went through a journey on my side, which is a painful one. So my empathy goes out to anyone who's going through it as far as like, how do I originate a new idea? How do I innovate in a space where there's literally billions of people also looking at this and went through Lean Startup, which is a book by Eric Rise that I'd highly recommend, was building up prototypes in little one to two week sprints mock-ups, showing them to friends, family, anybody I get to pay attention. And a lot of times they tell me that's a terrible idea. I don't want that product to exist in the world. I don't want to pay for it. Like don't spend five years of your life on that. And so, you know, went through this for several months and was complaining about this to a friend. And as a good friend, they were like, well, I guess you're going to go plant trees. It's a very sanitary version of that comment. And uh, so from there was like, great. I had participated in a really large tree planting project in the Northeast of Columbia, a scaling up a United Nations project that had been gone for 20 years and was like, I wonder how forestation set in the home country because I know there's a lot of automation in logging. And I started looking at that and was really kind of blown away at how manual it was. And then the next question was really, okay, well, what's, what are the pain points? And what came up again and again and again was the terrain. And you have tree planters carrying 40 pounds of, of trees grown in a nursery in bags on their hips. And they're going up there, going, you know, hiking up a mountain. And why a mountain? Well, because that's the place that can't be converted to a city or agriculture very easily. That's where the trees are. And so replanting in that way. And then they would hike back down and then reload and hike back up. And the caloric burn was the equivalent of running two marathons every day. And so the looking at that, you know, okay, great. Well, it seems like drones would have an application. What's been tried before and helicopters, planes had been tried before, but they were very inaccurate. And I think that this is borne out, like if you look at a helicopter deploying seed out there, it looks like a, a snowboarder and a half pipe does this sort of dive bomb. It like comes back up the other side of the half pipe, flips its rotor around its tail rotor, and then goes back down at a hundred miles an hour plus. So not very accurate to, and drones had a big advantage there. So that's really where we got started is you know, first from the mission, then into a painful process of origination, and then into, oh, okay, I think there's something here where we can do something. Now let me interview all the people who have been working on this, figure out what their pain points are, figure out, not just get hooked on the technology, but actually start with like, what's the customer problem? What's the problem they want to solve? And for a lot of them, it was reforest faster inside of a tight biological window with more precision and then figure out the technology and then also look at what's been tried before diving in and being like, well, great, we'll just do this with helicopters or otherwise that's been tried. And so then get into the, the other aspects. And then we got started in 2015. And so obviously we're, we're much further along in our journey now and have a much more comprehensive uh, suite of services around 150 people and fully vertically integrated or in layperson terms, like a one-stop shop for where does the seed, where does the seedlings, where do the drones and the labor come from and how do you finance it? So that's where we are today. So obviously we will have in the show notes the link to some of the videos that describe and show what you're doing, but how would you describe 
the drone seed solution in operation? What does it look like? What do you actually do? Oh man, uh, you have to help me stay honest here in a, in a short, tight answer because we've evolved so much further from just the drones into where does the seed come from? Yes, it's local, but it's native. It comes from seed zones. How do we then combine the deployment of seed in the seed vessels with the heavy lift drones with seedlings grown in nurseries? We grow millions of them, acquired Silva Seed, a 130-year-old business in 2021. And then how do we pay for it with carbon offsets? And so that's something that we utilize a conservation easement and have 100 years of funded monitoring of the project under Climate Action Reserve. So those are some of the pieces the drone aspect side of things, what I'll highlight there is these drones are not drones that you could buy at Best Buy. These are eight foot diameter drones. They carry a 57 pound payload. We are the first and only FAA approved to fly them in swarms, meaning one pilot can control up to five aircraft and that uh, we can operate them beyond visual line of sight. And then they carry that heavy payload. So generally a three-step process go out there, map the terrain with LiDAR and multispectral imaging, create like a 3D terrain map, plug that into our software, create the paths where the drones go uh, so they don't hit stuff so that they, you know, to that earlier point about precision, they deploy the seed vessels to places we want them. And then when they land, they we reload them like a NASCAR pit crew. So like swap the batteries, reload the payload of seed vessels, get them back up in the air. Then we come back eight months later and we see Hey, where is their patchy areas where we didn't see uptake of the seed for whatever reason? And we get better and better at every iteration, but that's where we plant seedlings from the nursery. So we combine the best of both worlds in that, in that way. A final question before we bring Bryce in, into this. So when we see in the news the, the large fires in California or in Washington state, how quickly are you likely to visit those destinations and work on addressing these? Well, I mean, sometimes we're there before the fire by days, meaning that when we do cone collections, so we'll go out there and we have one client who realized that they were probably, they were in a path of a fire and we collect cones from the wild. The reason being that utilizing seed that is as close to the fire zone as possible is what boosts the odds for survival and establishment. The seeds adapted to the area. Simple example as a thought experiment is like, if you take dug fur from the coast and you put it in a mountain range, that seed from the coast, while it's native to both areas, is not is adapted to salt in the air and the water. It's not adapted to higher elevation, low oxygen, so it has a much lower survival and establishment rate. So we want to be utilizing seed from as close to a fire as possible, utilizing U.S. Forest Service seed zones. And on that basis, we were aware that there was a really good cone crop or a mast that was that's really sometimes only available every once or twice a decade. So we were up there seeing that there was a fire coming. We had tree climbers collecting cones, getting them for processing because we might not get another shot for another decade or so to get seed of that species in that seed zone. And that's something that we were looking at and going like, this is an opportunity. So of course we didn't put anybody in harm's way. We operated at a safe distance, but we were very aware that there were fires coming and we wanted to get that valuable genetic material before the fires got it. And fires did get it, unfortunately. And nobody was even close to the fire when that came through, but it was something that we were very aware of. And then we've been out to site after fires have gone through where they're, you know, week, two weeks after and that deployment with drones and the seed vessels as really as close to after a fire as possible, which is a big shift for the industry is really important. We've been out there and there's still been smoking, the, the roots sort of smoldering two weeks later after a fire has been slowly burning under ground. So those are some, you know, we want to be out there as fast as possible before any competitive vegetation starts to take hold because that creates an environmental footprint to remove, whether you're scraping it, whether you're reburning it, just think any abandoned lot, how fast Himalayan blackberries or scotch broom or other things like get in there. That's where we want to get in there and get the trees established before those things do. And usually there's about a year to do so, but we want to be in there as soon as possible. Exciting, totally on the frontiers of those challenges. So Bryce, let me come to you. Share with us the inspiration for Solo. No, the inspiration, appreciate you asking for Solo, goes back 10 years, honestly, and really back to when my co-founder and I started at Uber in the very early days. And at, it was late 2012. You know, the gig economy was not at all what it is today. And my job in the very beginning was to open up our Seattle office here, we had three people in it, 
And I was working directly with drivers face to face, you know, 50, 100 people in a day at that time. And hard to imagine now because Uber and, and so many other platforms are so many things, you know, in terms of delivery and jobs and, and last mile, et cetera. But we were just a town car company at the time. And, you know, I was literally walking out onto East Olive here in Seattle and jumping in the back of town cars and testing seat belts. We were testing brake lights. We were running back in to do the background checks. And then we're handing people phones. We used to give everyone a smartphone back then as the company. And so obviously over time, you know, thousands and thousands of interactions, you know, the support line actually went through my personal phone. You get to know these workers and these drivers really, really well. And you start to understand, you know, why it's such the gig economy and becoming your own boss and an independent worker is so powerful, but you also understand, you know, the shortcomings of it. And you start to kind of get an idea of the problems. And trust me, you heard a lot about that while I was at Uber. And, and you know, fast forward over time here, ended up doing a lot more on the policy side as the company scaled. And I uh, actually got a chance to work with legislators, the state, county, and city level to try to figure out how do we you know, legislate for uh, ride-sharing companies, but also independent contractors, insurance in the space, et cetera. And so it was a really interesting experience because you've got, you know, lightning fast Uber over here that's, you know, and, and, you know, reputationally, obviously very disruptive. And on the other side, legislators trying to figure out what to do with this, you know, new way of working with this platform. And what does it mean? Because it was so fresh and so new and sweeping, you know, the country and the world at the time. And, you know, that got my co-founder and I talking over many you know, meals, a few beers, coffees, about, you know, hey, that we think there's tens of millions of people. In fact, there's 70 million people in the United States alone that are going to do some sort of frontline gig work this year in the United States. And, you know, people are, despite all of its challenges, despite all the, you know, issues they may have, they are choosing to be their own boss and have control over their time and to, you know, kind of brave what is not always the most secure safety net kind of opportunity for them because it's the best thing for their life and ultimately can and unlock other opportunities for them, both personally and professionally. And so we said, hey, there's got to be a better way. It feels like these people are getting left behind. You know, Uber, the other companies can't really step in and, and do as much because of the whole employer, independent contractor boundary and their business model. On the flip side, government, you know, just in this case, doesn't quite move as quickly. I think they're still hashing out the same battles 10 years later that we were talking about then. And, you know, we said, we think there's a real opportunity here uh, to step in and really tackle what we heard was the most core problem, which, uh, you know, it may, many people jump to things like taxes, you know, people need help with their taxes, they need help with insurance, they need a, a better banking solution, right? All those things are very important and part of the back office of being an independent worker. But if you talk to them day in, day out, what they're worried about is how much money am I going to make today? You know, how do I make the most money today? When and where should I work to do that? Right. And so that's where we, you know, originally set off with Solo to try and solve that problem. And so we do that by providing a optimized schedule using community data from gig workers themselves, kind of glass door style to show them the highest paying jobs at any given hour in their local city. And so what that helps them do is obviously solve that problem of how do I ensure that I, you know, I'm working the best job for my time, but also how do I optimize that time and make more per hour? And we see that people make 20 to 30% more per hour when they do that. And then on the flip side, we've actually gone in and we actually guarantee that daily wage now. And so we've become confident enough in those predictions. We understand the marketplace dynamics well enough now and kind of the supply and demand elements that we can start to produce daily guarantees for workers, which takes a big piece of that anxiety, a big piece of that whole kind of why, why you would churn out of this space because of that you know, uncertainty around, I can make $8 an hour today, or I can make 35. You know, it's hard to pay the bills you know, when you're thinking about it that way. And, and the last thing I'll say on it is the reason why that's so important is because you know, most of these folks are overlapping with the tens of millions of underbanked or unbanked folks in this country. And unlike maybe us on the call here, right, where we have a credit card where we pay for a lot of things day to day, many of these workers are, you know, it's a cash-based system. And so the gig economy is phenomenal in that it allows you to go out and make money today. But on the flip side, the lack of security and safety net is a big issue for people. And, and we're helping kind of bridge that gap. And, and we think there's a lot of interesting opportunities in the future to, to get, go deeper there with this workforce. So 70 million workers 
really stepped into in America and the United States this year are participating in the economy. It's, it's probably the most disruptive trend over the last decade in terms of the change, the shift for the, the workforce. And what do you mean when you say we guarantee their income? How do you do that? It's a little bit of kind of like a foreign concept, right? Because I think people are used to pay being a set rate, right? Or, you know, you, a salary or you name it, right? Or by project. And what you see with so many of these workers, right? If you're a DoorDash driver or you're an Instacart shopper, or a Rover dog walker even, right? These are marketplaces. And so what happens is you have peaks and troughs in demand, uh, not only by day, but by week, by month, annually. And so your earnings can vary greatly. You can go out on a Sunday night, great to deliver food. It's 40 bucks an hour. You can go out on Monday afternoon and you're going to make about seven, eight bucks an hour. And so that volatility and that uncertainty, because they don't have a bird's eye view into this as a worker, is really frustrating. And so what we do is we take all that earnings data and we can kind of show the worker the supply and demand trends and subsequently the highest earning jobs in their city kind of following those demand curves, right? And say, hey, not only do we know which jobs are going to be the busiest, but we have a pretty good idea of how much everyone's earning on the platform. It's $22 an hour from four to five. It's from five to six, it's 24 bucks an hour. And maybe it drops for 18 bucks an hour after that. And so we can say, hey, let's build up your optimal schedule. And we give you a tally for the end of the day. We say, hey, say you're going to work those three hours. You're going to make, from what we see in the data, $80 today in those three hours. If you go out and work those jobs that you schedule with us in our app, we'll guarantee that you're going to make that $80 because we can obviously see not only what everyone else is doing across the ecosystem, but then obviously make sure that the worker is, you know, working the optimal job and understand, you know, uh, the performance on that and, and uh, ultimately uh, top them up if for some reason they don't get to the $80. So if they get to 75, we top them up the five bucks and take out that kind of downside risk and anxiety, you know, ultimately for people working every day. Share briefly a especially gratifying moment as an example of a feedback or an experience of somebody on your platform, please. Yeah, I think the most exciting stories, I mean, there's one in particular is one of our earliest users, a guy by the name of Devin, who is, you know, he was doing Grubhub for years and he was on one platform and he was a guy that had kind of had, you know, just regular, you know, part-time or full-time hourly jobs before that. And he kind of viewed the gig economy and being his own boss, like, well, I guess I'll just go work for Grubhub, right? I'll just go do one platform and I'll just kind of ride it out, you know, up and down each day. And what was really cool to see was when we started bringing to him even our earliest product and showing him, hey, if you looked at like Uber or Lyft during these weekend hours when you like to work, you can make a lot more. Or have you tried the grocery shopping? On the holidays, he picked up Amazon Flex. And what's really cool to see is he ended up adding five jobs to his portfolio and really started thinking about himself, not as an employee of Grubhub, which obviously he was an independent contractor, but he started thinking of himself as like, I'm a, you know, really an independent business. I should be going to the highest bidder for my time, the most efficient use of it. I can, on top of that, manipulate the schedule to my own personal wants and needs and, and obligations. And he went from making about 18, 19 bucks an hour all the way up to 29, 30 bucks an hour. So a 50% increase in take home. And, you know, he ended up, you know, being able to take a little bit more time off with family because he made a bunch more during certain times, uh, flexed that time back in during certain peak periods. He worked a bunch more. He was working much more efficiently, which was really cool to see. And the whole mindset changed around kind of how do I view myself individually? Because so many of these workers, when you talk to them, think about it in a more traditional employment kind of relationship. And the reality is to have the flexibility, it's an independent contractor relationship, but you don't have to have that downside risk anymore. We can like start to fill those gaps. We can fix those pieces. We can give you the data and the transparency so that you're not playing a guessing game out there and you feel alone in your car trying to figure out what job to do. And so uh, we, we're always really excited to share Devin's story. And there's been others like that from across the country now that, you know, have just, they feel a lot more empowered with their own time, which is the biggest reason why people enter into the gig economy. It's not to be a necessarily a millionaire or anything like that overnight, but it's to have control over your time and make a good living and, and ultimately, you know, hopefully make this a longer term thing for people. So not only do you give them the technological platform to solve for that need, in a way you are re-educating them about the possibility and providing them a new sense of, well, self-view, who they are and how they can interact with the market, which is powerful. 
for the conditions you are describing. So when we take a step back and listen to these two stories uh, from Bryce and, and from Grant Colton, and we take the bigger picture, which is, as we said, this is a dramatically disruptive time, and many people are not doubting the two or three centuries experiment that we've been on as free market economies and, and such. Firstly, because we are destroying the planet. Uh, secondly, because we don't seem to be able to solve the kind of socioeconomic issues. Thirdly, because we see the global institutions and political institutions frozen and broken. And fourthly, because we're seeing that a model like the Chinese model seems to sometime in a moment of crisis perhaps be more efficient. So we, there is a, an anxiety, global anxiety about the broadest human experiment we've been in over the last two, three centuries. And our meta point in this exploration is that businesses like the solution that Grant is bringing to market to solve this idea of reforestation and what Bryce is bringing to solve this new emergent space that's called the gig economy. These are important stories. What would you offer both at a practical level from your insight into these businesses? Please be free to go as philosophical as you choose to in the importance of entrepreneurial energy through times of change like the one we are experiencing right now? I'm going to start with a broad point. You talk about authoritarianism, and I want to say that it is authoritarianism is always going to move faster. It's more efficient in terms of decisioning, because if there's only one person or a central authority making a you know, decision for everyone, but it's almost always not as effective in the long run, right? So you give up speed for effectiveness in with that kind of a regime. So while you can point to countries like China and say, hey, they're moving very quickly, or maybe they can make decisions faster and implement quicker and things, all true. And that's true of the history of authoritarian regimes. The effectiveness, however, the long-term ability to manage the very broad array of issues that come up across an entire population get whitewashed and, and do not get adequately addressed. So the effectiveness of those solutions often gets comp highly compromised. And you know, I, I wouldn't suggest that we as a country here are on the wrong path, the you know, social democracy versus authoritarianism or communism. But I would say that everything, like everything in the world, you know, you, there are pros and cons, right? Can we become more efficient as a country in making decisions? Can we become more efficient at discussing our getting, you know, gathering inputs? I was mentioning to all of you before we began this conversation last night, I was wonderful dinner for the bipartisan policy coalition out of DC. And this is a group of very partisan players who understand that in order to get legislation done, you have to cooperate. And there's very little, of, there's less of that than we would like to see, certainly in the media, because the media likes to portray everything as negative. But, you know, this is actually happening in real time. And so we, you know, as Grant points out, we need a coalescence of great founders with good ideas, energy and capital to bring them to life, but we also need good public policy. I mean, Bryce mentioned working on his public policy thing as well, even with Solo. All of these have a public policy arm and an associated necessary component. You know, Grant wouldn't be successful without some form of carbon credit offset. You know, and the work that Bryce has done has really benefited from some of the work to make, you know, get more banking and insurance products out to more people. And, you know, there's public policy that has to exist to create some underpinnings for these things. And so... As I look at the broader context, I am trying to pull the various levers that are available to me as an individual, and I think to many more people than you'd imagine. Number one, picking where to deploy capital for long-term impact. So, you know, I mentioned how I choose my projects, looking for and engaging in the public policy sector in ways that I believe also foster long-term collaboration and statesmanship and cooperation. And, you know, marrying that with sort of a bigger, I guess, a worldview of, you know, we all do better when we all do better. And, you know, if you sort of stop there and think about that statement for just a minute, it is unbelievably simple and elegant. But if everyone is doing better, the entire world does better. So, you know, anything we can do climactically, entrepreneurially, jobs, financially to support our peers and our fellow citizens 
is for the large ways of making you more successful also. Well, so building on this, Grant, let me come back to you, this aspect of coalescence. In each of your businesses, you needed to bring different stakeholders to collaborate on your vision and solution. What would you offer as a comment to that, the challenge of that, and how do you approach that challenge of bringing the various stakeholders to facilitate your vision? Yeah. Well, I'll speak to what I know here was just the number one thing to think as far as the journey and the lessons that I can sort of hopefully like, well, first of all, my goal is to bring as many people into climate tech companies as possible. And that what we do reforestation is not a silver bullet for climate change. We need all hands on deck working on all of the possible options. And so I guess my goal here is providing some of my own trials and tribulations to your question, like how to bring these people on board for me, like went through and got started early and just about killed the company by not having a hiring process in 2016. And so, you know, by not having a process, we, of course, you end up with a process, one ends up with a process and it's not a very good one. It's more of an ad hoc one. And so I think that was one of the very first things that was sort of my journey many years ago was, oh, okay, we need to improve this in a really significant way. So, all right, how do we do a hiring process that's effective? And I think a hiring process for how you get three people into a company together is very different. And this is sort of the journey that I went on and continue to be on, which is uh, great. It's a hiring process for three people is very different than a hiring process for 20, 50, 100 people. And so we were working at the encouragement of many folks on our values at the same time as a company. And a lot of people that's something that's stuck on the wall and never looked at again. And, and I think what we ended up doing is we ended up using a method for hiring, which is by the authors Street and Smart and cribbing a lot of their process for hiring. But then we did a novel thing and we combined it with our values. So we ended up hiring a lot of our early hires on the basis of mission and continue to hire exclusively on the basis of mission. Like that is the thing that works. And then also evaluate employees, uh, potential candidates based off of the values of the company and ask people to, you know, on the scorecard of ratings to like really focus on that aspect. And then, you know, over time it was great. Let's have four candidates for every position and let's then rank them on these factors. Now these are business factors. These are not just lofty ideals. They're business factors. And for every company, they'll have different things. But for us, the mission was the one that we still don't compromise on today, which is make reforestation scalable, mitigate the worst effects of climate change. And in 2016, when we were start getting started, there was not a lot of opportunity to get involved in climate tech in any significant way. That word didn't exist, that terminology. It was clean tech 1.0. That was largely like, hey, that had died. It, you know, don't work on that. Like, and tree planting was one of the, and reforestation was one of the only ways to get involved. Now there's a whole hell of a lot of technologies and that's awesome. That's the world I want to live in. However, we benefited hugely from focusing on mission and and we went from whiteboards to sheets to Google Forms to Lever as a hiring backend. And at one point it broke. We were not able to have four candidates for every position because that quadrupled the number of candidates we had to source. And if we had 20 open jobs, that meant that multiply by four for how many candidates we had to have plus You've got to have all the other ones you filter and then you turn that into interview hours and like that just it broke and so then like great well how do we now change this process into one that is more scalable so anyway that was a journey but i think that what i would love for people to take away is that often there's idea of like a work family i don't love that metaphor Ideal families are based on unconditional love, and that's not everyone's family, which sucks. But the idea that your work environment is unconditional love environment is not an accurate metaphor. So let's use the term of like a sports championship or the Super Bowl. Pick your you know World Cup, World Series, whatever it is. That's our mission. That's the thing that everybody is focused on. You know, that's how I think about it is conceptually. Even if I know nothing about someone or I disagree with someone's approach or whatever. I know that their heart isn't focused on the same mission that mine is. So wherever they're coming from, urban, rural, international, domestic, like it doesn't matter. We're focused on the same thing. That's the Super Bowl. And I think that's what makes a lot of winning teams is like, I don't care where they're coming from. I want to win the Super Bowl. And now winning climate change is a weird sort of adjustment for a metaphor. Like there is no winning. It's mitigating the worst effects. 
but we can do that and we can have a bright future. Time is short. That's why we want everybody in working on that. So yeah, so that's, I think for me, kind of where a lot of my journey has come from on bringing people in is, is selling them on the mission that we can make that impact and then evaluating people like, you know, a very easy litmus test for us. Do they believe in climate change? Just full stop. That's a great starting point for our hiring process. And if the answer is no, like, great, I don't care what their skills are. And just so we can connect with the impulse that drives you from earlier on, at what's the earliest point in your life where you are recognizing that there is an issue with the climate and number two, that you will do something about it at length, but give us the, the moment of that awakening for you, please. My origins go back to like Robin Hood and building tree forts, but fast forward to like more on point for your questions. I had, you know, a high school English teacher who helped me figure out what my core values were, exposed me to a lot of philosophy. And this is why everybody can get involved if you're a teacher, like there's ample opportunities. They helped me figure out, like, I guess that my compass was, wow, there's all these amazing problems that I could potentially devote my time to building something for. How do I prioritize? And I think what I came to was I looked at the history that I was learning at the same time of the Dust Bowl or for a less Eurocentric example, like the Great Hunger in China and was like, wow, if our climate goes to the same place it was at those periods of time in those places, our political, social, economic systems will be so stressed that people are going to be focused more on how do they provide for their families and they won't have any time to focus on medical advances on any of the things that are other hard and important problems out there that we could all agree on. And so like, you know, I later had somebody in life who helped me codify that into words, which is like climate change is the, the problem that all our problems report to. And it's not because it's more valid or anything along those lines. In fact, it intersects with a lot of other problems. It's just, if we don't mitigate the worst effects of our, of climate change, our political, social, and economic systems will fall apart. And then we don't have all the people working on other problems will have no more time on the clock. And that to me would be, you know, one of the greatest tragedies and impacts of climate change. So that is English teacher helped me find that. Thank you. Bryce, um, at what point in your formation and upbringing, you are realizing that you have the power to shape, to influence, to drive solution. And then we'll ask you further into your response to the stakeholder that you need to bring in your business. But give us first the roots for you on this journey as bringing and causing change. Yeah, I think it starts way back as a kid. I didn't have quite as impactful of an English teacher maybe in my time, but I grew up around entrepreneurship. So my grandparents had a small airline in Southeast Alaska and part of the kind of family thing, they ran it for 50 years up there, was to go up every summer and help, you know, put the mail in the back of planes, uh, you know, work in the hangar, you know, you're just handed wrenches and, and trying to find uh, parts and stuff like that. And being around that, you know, entrepreneurship at a very early age, you know, was something that I remember walking out of the hangar one day and being like, hey, this is, it wasn't very glamorous. It was, you know, Juneau, Alaska and like 40 degrees and raining. But I remember being like, I think I want to do something like this. And, you know, for us, it's not just about the startup that we're running and getting the opportunity to do that. But I think it transcends into what we're trying to bring and that kind of shift, as you mentioned, of you in mentality to individuals. Because so many people, I think, of starting a business is just like so far away, even if it's a basic business, it's so far out in the distance, you know, not something that they'll ever attain, not something that they'll have control of in terms of their time. And, you know, for us, this is an incremental shift, you know, for the millions of workers in this space to start thinking more about that, that you can do this, that you can have control over your time, that you can have control over your finances and really, you know, take a different path. And, you know, that's when I think about it, it goes back to kind of those experiences growing up that, you know, it, I got a chance and I was very lucky to be able to just see it firsthand, you know, by being in the family. But, you know, not every business needs to be a brick and mortar store. You know, not every business needs to be a venture-backed startup for that matter either. You can run your own small business through a combination of both jobs, projects, et cetera, and, and have financial success and flexibility and control of your time. And that's, I think, something that people are getting to. They're understanding that's like possible now. But like the tooling and the, you know, all the other pieces that we're trying to bring to them don't quite exist, you know, out there for them to enable that. And so I think that 
thinking back to those moments growing up, that was kind of the big drive of how we, at least how I ended up kind of in this spot to try to, you know, accomplish this mission. Well, so let's actually bring Court, because Court, you have an extraordinary story about your upbringing that I know you could tell the longer version of, but give us the brief version of how you are very early on in your life being introduced to the idea of entrepreneurial leadership and uh, get immersed in this world. Absolutely. All right. The 50,000 foot view. I had the great good fortune. My father was the person that invented the commercialized process for growing silicon and is credited as being one of the founders of Silicon Valley, like one of the eight guys that actually made Silicon Valley real. And he commercialized that technology and made a big company that eventually went public. Once he had sold that company, he also established one of the very first venture capital firms in what became Silicon Valley. And on, uh, and he had six, five partners in this fund, very early stage, you know, early, there wasn't really a VC industry at this moment in history, but, and their practice was to, uh, that each month, one of the partners would host a dinner for the other five, where they would have a meal. And then after dinner, they would take their drinks and their cigars, and they would adjourn to the host's living room, and they would invite one entrepreneur in to pitch them. And then they would usher the person out the door and sit there over their late night drinks and debate the quality and viability of this business idea. And so twice a year, I had the privilege of sitting at the dinner, sitting around the living room and listening to entrepreneurs live pitch this group of venture capitalists and hearing them debate after the fact what the pros and cons of that opportunity were. And so I had this incredible front row view of how capital is evaluated and deployed, how to understand what makes a good potential business, what makes a good, might make a good entrepreneur from a very brief window of exposure. And so when I, you know, and then my father himself was a founder of multiple extraordinarily successful companies in his career, I got to see that that was a viable path. That for me, I've always been very curious and that took me through entrepreneurship, which has now led me to being an investor and in entrepreneurs, because I understand, you know, what Grant and Bryce are going through. I've sat in that chair. I know what it, how hard it is to overcome the obstacles that they face every single day. And, and I value their time and energy and focus so much that all I want to do is just lend any support, advice, anything that can make their day jobs faster, better, easier. I'm there. So from your experience and observation, what are the top two or three challenges that they face every day? Well, I'd say, you know, Grant hit it on the nail. You know, the, for me, it all starts with team and, you know, the quality of the founders and the founding team. And then not only the who's around the table, what role does each participant play in the end game? So if you think about a businesses or even an entrepreneurial journey begins with a concept, but it's attempting to reach an outcome. And if you begin with the outcome in mind and you say, based on today, the the core superpowers that I need around the table today are these, you know, and what roles should those participants fill on the road to that journey? So, you know, these guys are great examples of folks who have learned on the job and brought great teams, you know, brought teams around them and adapted when they needed to. And, and are you know continue to be successful for, from a team perspective. So that's certainly number one. Number two, is it the right product, the right solution to you know identifying problems and opportunities takes a particular amount of vision, but then really doing the hard yards to understand you know not only the the potential fault lines that you can think about yourself, but also doing the deep digging of your predecessors, other entrepreneurs who've tried the space that you were about to enter and what was successful and what did they fail on and trying to early address those problems. Both of these guys I know did that in spades. And to me that it doesn't guarantee success, but it certainly influences the odds of a successful outcome. So that is part of your practice, part of your discipline. You look at a, at a business, you look at an idea and you try to reason why it will not work or what about it is broken or why this idea will fail. And when you can't kill the idea, when you can't kill the business, it probably is the, the right idea. That's partly the story of exactly. DocuSign, correct? 
Yeah, and both of these guys know this about me. This is one of my core mantras is, you know, let's do everything we can to try and kill the idea early because I had the good fortune of being involved with both of them relatively early in their journeys. And then let's go out and ask a lot of questions within the industry of players that have tried this before you and failed and get their insights as to what killed them and see if we still have solutions to those problems. And if we have all of that and we can solve every problem or every fatal flaw that's presented to us along the way, then there's a decent chance that there's a real opportunity here, one that could ultimately be successful if, if executed upon properly. So yeah, so is it the right team? Did we get the right product and solve all the core problems in advance? That's sort of number two. And you know, is this a problem worth solving? Is it big enough that will make a significant impact so that it's not only a, economic wins are good, but is it a you know economic and societal win? Does it bring something that we don't have that we need as a broader society? So to me, those are my personal filter. Brilliant. Bryce, what would you synthesize as, as the top two or three learning insights for you on this journey? Yeah, I think I've been a part of you know fast-growing startups, you know, relatively early, not of course never this early at Uber and Convoy, but you know, I think one. Beyond you know what uh, you know Grant and Court have said around team, which is obviously super critical early on, who you work with, having common mission, like making sure there's buy-in. There's three hundred percent with those pieces. I think there's a, a real you know there's ability and a resilience to dealing with the manic uh, you know day to day, if you will, of the ups and downs. The uh, which you know everyone always says startups are really hard, obviously you know, and especially venture backed one, and that's you know a little cliche, but I think. What gets missed is sometimes when you're so small and you're so early, and as Court mentioned, you're trying to figure out what to kill or what to lean into, you know, what you should stick with around your core, you know, thesis. Are we just like one little change away? And you'll have days where you get phenomenal user feedback, you know, and, you know, a bunch of users sign up, you know, you're seeing things click. And then the next day you'll get, you know, some bad emails or reviews or something breaks. And, you know, you're in complete triage mode. And so I think there's an aspect, back to your question of of learning, you know, through that of like when and how to, you know, absorb, like slow things down, no sudden movements, you know, kind of thing. Like, let's stay the course here and when to identify like something's really broken or on fire. We got to see out ahead, you know, not just tomorrow, but three to six months from now. What are all the little indicators or anecdotal feedback points in addition to data that you get? to make those changes. And so I'd say the learning here, maybe synthesizing is kind of like when to, you know, when to really react and move quickly as a startup, which is obviously your strength, you're nimble, you're small, and when to kind of like, you know, stand your ground and ultimately stick with your original thesis or your early product or whatever it might be and and kind of see through some of the tougher blips and whatnot. Because you're often dealing with smaller numbers when you're a startup, right? You're dealing with small number of users, you know, signal can look, you know, one way or another day to day. And, you know, it can be a rougher ride if you're not used to kind of like that up and down on a day to day. And that's beyond all the other stuff that we could talk around team, you know, there's obviously fundraising, all those kind of things, you know, just throw some more interesting ingredients into, into your day. But in terms of the core, you know, business piece, you know, I think that's one of the biggest learnings I've had is kind of when you flip that switch and how then you drive the team, you know, one way or another, when to either reassure them or when to be like, okay, we got to drop everything and go right now. Grant, what would you add from your experience, the, the key learnings on your journey? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I'll follow up to what was said previously here, which just to add some additional commentary on the, as far as the like killing the business. Yeah, is there is that when do you adapt, when do you stand your ground? And I think what I'll add to that is that you used to have a colleague that would say, oh, you've killed the business again when they were looking at the like spreadsheet over and over and over. And there were different things that would come up and you're like, oh, man, like that is going to kill the business. And that's when you're in the business. You've already started and you're working through the various problems. And from the, you know, the top of the conversation, I killed several businesses. In fact, like literally people killed them for me. They said, I don't want that. And I can give a couple examples because I think there's a little bit of nuance there as to like, what is an idea to pursue or solve? In some cases, they're great ideas, but I had a couple that I was just not in a position to be able to solve. And I think this also gets into the appeal of like, are you hardware? Are you software? Are you bio? You're a combination. And those are different sort of entry levels that are needing to be assessed. But like to speak very like explicitly, like 
I'll give one example of a business that I looked at at the time in 2014, 2015 was like, wow, all right, it's going to take 40 minutes to charge an electric vehicle. Let's look at a thing that people don't love, gas stations. They're dirty. They have terrible food, like customer service, maybe not the best. And you just look at those things and you're like, why do gas, you know, bathrooms, disgusting, most often. Some of them, you know, people have their favorite gas station chains or whatever. So I got into a lot of the like, why do people still go to like, could I make a gas station that would be like amazing? It would be super clean. You would have healthy food. You're going to be there for 40 minutes, not the like five to 15. And I worked through and I learned a couple of things. Like one, like people have a secret road trip food. I would say like 40, 60% of people, like some people actually eat the hot dogs that like that are there for hours on end for some people it's pringles for some people it's orange tic tacs like it's a terrible food that they know is terrible for them but they're on a journey that journey is hard it's a road trip it's three four hours they will that's their secret and so that's why all that terrible food is in there and i did not know that i didn't have a secret gas station food and i've since adopted orange tic tacs so that was one insight of just like interviewing and figuring out why this thing exists and the other thing i realized was oh you want a super clean bathroom. You want healthy foods where it tells you the caloric content. You want it to taste like good. You want it to have a quality standard. You have good, good service. Congratulations. You've invented a Starbucks. Like, and like all of a sudden it was like, well, if Starbucks got into the EV charging, I would be screwed. And they would just come in. And then you see last year we saw like Starbucks, you know, focused on becoming like the EV charging portal or hub. And so it was looking at that and being like, one major competitor decides and then also what's the startup capital that's required apparently it takes a lot of money to buy a gas station or to buy a lot and to build a physical infrastructure and to like sort of mvp test it minimum viable prototype and so on that you can test it with some mock-ups and sort of show people some architectural images there's cheaper ways to do that you don't have to buy a gas station but i think like that was a way in which i like I killed a business three ways. Like, why does the food exist the way it does? Like, why, you know, what would the competitive landscape be? What's, am I the right person to solve this? And could I come up with the capital to do this? Yes, you could go to a bank, you could buy a thing, but they may not trust you. They might not be a bank that is available for to loan funds for a business that doesn't yet have any earned income. And sort of, sort of, you could pitch it and come at it from a different perspective, but is there a more efficient way to sort of minimum viable prototype this? So that was a way in which I killed the business three times. And I think that like, that is one of the appeals of software is it is so cheap to create a minimum viable prototype of something. Now you can do the same things for hardware, for bio with drawings and with other ways to put it in front of people and see if they would sort of conceptually buy a product. But that I think is something like, and then you look at like, maybe you do just think that my whole strategy is I'm going to build a business and I'm going to get bought by Starbucks. And that's maybe when do you adapt? When do you stand your ground? Like that is a totally viable business model, but it's a very different pitch to an investor than a, I'm going to take on Starbucks when they inevitably come into the space. And that requires a different level of capital, a different sort of, we're on this journey together. So part of the practice you're demonstrating there is the hard inquiry, asking all the hard questions of why this will not work. And when you can no longer kill the business, it probably is, as Court said, the right idea. So let me invite that we do a final round. And I'd like you to speak for a minute or two, the next generation of entrepreneurs. There may be a 14-year-old, a 15, 16, 17-year-old. They have a dream. They see that this is a troubled world. You know, we have now more anxiety, more worries with teenagers than any other time in history. They look at the future. The statistics are horrible. We have more teenage depression and anxiety than any other time. Partly it's the confusion. Partly it's the difficult problems. Partly it's the, the velocity of change. But right in that generation, there are also the brilliant talent, the visionary minds. Let's see, what would you want to say to them, if you talk to them about believing in themselves, believing in their ability to envision and create something new, what would be your message? What would you want to share with them? Uh, who is ready to take this first? Neither of the other guys have older kids. I have older children. So I'm going to talk to that one right away. <laughs> I believe one of the most impactful things that young people can do to really make a dent in the world is 
are a to be educated you know maintain an education that allows them to see problems in their broadest possible context be inquisitive in the sense of look you know look at the source material that as they become educated so that they're not being dragged into you know falsehoods right accidentally so you really have to be the steward of your own information gathering and recognize that not all sources are legitimate or created equal maybe is a better way to put it and then i would say travel introduce travel to a young person as much as you know not everyone can travel internationally but move out of your comfort zone basically take a you know allow children to see other people in other places and other lifestyles and learn empathy for those situations and that could be socioeconomic that could be geographic that could be any number of variables but that type of empathy that i often see that comes with having an opportunity to travel or taking travel on translates into being able to see problems that others don't you know the thing that Bryce and Grant have is they had the ability the vision to to identify opportunity where others had failed to see it and you know that so i'd say those you know education and travel to me are continue to be the core engines for bringing you know somebody who might otherwise think they want to change the world to make somebody into somebody that could do it and just staying with you for a minute the court what is the empathy mindset what is the empathy practice when you travel how do you actually practice it i think it's it stems from a willingness to meet people where they are as opposed to where you are right so we all have our own selves and our experiences to filter our life through when we go to school when we travel when we open our minds and our hearts to other people's their version of experiences and without judgment just listening we then create a space where we can have the hard conversations the ones that you know bridge the racial lines bridge the socioeconomic lines bridge the climactic impact lines because they will all influence us in one way or another and so we all have a valid perspective So to me the way to make change happen is you can't it's very hard to make change from the edges right so you can it's very easy to get elected by screaming at the edges so that one of the things we've noted in our politics is that to get elected you must exist at one end of that polar sphere or the other because that's where the election happens but the ideas are all in the middle right the real change the real is a form of compromise and empathy to those extremes and understanding that we all do better if we all do better i go back to that which is we must find ways to empathetically compromise to find the common ground and then we can create solutions like the ones you're hearing about that do tremendously impactful good to huge populations and with you know minimal to no unintended consequences right so and, and yeah, these are all factors in producing and using entrepreneurship as an engine for societal and betterment Bryce, what would you offer a circle of teenagers who are dreaming to make a dent in the world? Yeah, I think one of the things that I remember growing up was the, and you know, things move so much faster today. I mean, the world's changed since, I mean, I was in high school 15 years ago, you know, and it's not that long, but it's a substantially different place. And I remember the stress, and I imagine it's even worse now, around thinking you had to know exactly what you were going to do. You know, you had to know what you were good at. You had to know, you know, this is going to be your pathway. And I think one of the things I learned, you know, growing up at one way or another, it, it led me here, was I ended up doing and taking on a bunch of jobs through high school, college, and after that were all over the place from video production at, you know, public or uh, governmental kind of organizations to real estate to, you know, everything in between an energy startup. Uh, while some of those were quite painful experiences. You know, generally people you hear, they kind of say, well, I want to know what to do, what I want to do. So I go get that job rather than saying, well, maybe I'll try a few things and I'll figure out process of elimination, what I don't want to do. And it was that process that, you know, led me to the opportunity to, to join Uber super early on because I'd done a bunch of these, you know, kind of jobs all over the place in, in interest areas. And, and I, you know, figured out I love logistics. I figured out I wanted to join an early stage company. I had been at a big corporation before that. figured out, you know, I love the entrepreneurship angle that you know the gig economy brought. But I would have not been able to do that had I not, you know, bounced around and tried a few different things out and 
So my experience that I always try to instill, maybe not high schoolers, but you know, people earlier in their career who kind of ask like, what should I do next? Or, you know, what should I be striving for is, is, you know, try to get that rounded experience because, you know, sometimes it's not going to be obvious until you kind of knock a few of those things off your list, bring you back to, to ultimately what you really want to do. And so I think if we have more people doing what they really want to do, you know, pay, bring it back to a higher meta point, you're going to get people making bigger impact with their lives, being happier around it. You're going to get people working on the tougher problems because that's what they love to do. And, you know, that's the reality is to work on really hard problems like startups and everything else and new ventures, it, you kind of have to love what you do unconditionally, or, you know, it's just probably not going to be something that either you're very good at or you're going to do for very long. And so I think that at least that was the recipe I try to follow and would share with a group of teenagers today. That's awesome. What would you uh, add from your message, Grant? I'll do my best to synthesize and then take it to a broader, perhaps slightly older audience that's in the later stage. But I think like the synthesis there to, to add on to that, I would say targeting learning and then targeting serendipity at the same time and trying to balance those two is probably important. I may have done a little bit, I may have over-rotated on the serendipity and not so much on the targeted learning. And But I, to put that into a very simple example, I visited, I've lived 10 years abroad and visited a lot of the world's countries and lived in them on four continents, et cetera. And I think what I learned was that it was incredibly stressful to go to a place and try and organize an itinerary to visit everything. And so, especially for like a city like Rome or otherwise. And so I think where I evolved into is very much into a like, go see one thing you're super excited about for me in Rome is the Colosseum. I spent eight hours in the Colosseum. I did the two or three tours. I sketched it to like really absorb the details. And the rest of my time in Rome, I like was like, I just want to mess around. And I, you know, ideally can connect with somebody who knows somebody who lives there. If the, that network exists and it's accessible, it's not always accessible, but just see what they live, where they live, what they do with their time, what they, you know, talk with them, et cetera, and just kind of mess around. But like I saw the thing that I was really excited about, and that was my targeted learning. Like I wanted to understand everything about the Coliseum. But at the same time, and then I just wanted to like muck about and like see what the transit infrastructure was like or get a coffee or just sit there or whatever. So I think like that's an example and that can be applied in a lot of ways to use the internship example. I have a lot of regrets. I did not do a lot of valuable internships in high school. I was really excited about working uh, and learning about cars. And then I went to go, you know, apply and get my job at 15 at Jiffy Lube and they didn't let you work in the pits. They, and so I got really good at vacuuming and washing windows and I wanted to learn about cars. And like, I was like, this would be great. I'll get paid. And so like I dropped that in a month and I wish I'd done more in that vein of those targeted internships. And for people who are like in that space and thinking about it. Uh, you know, it'll provide a couple of resources. So that's targeted learning, targeted serendipity. That's my number one. Number two is practicing convincing people. I saw some great social media fodder. Somebody basically requiring their kids that every time, and apparently this comes up, Corey, you can tell me if this is accurate or not, but every child at some point in their life wants a pet and requiring them to pitch to not just family and friends, but also some strangers that you rope into it in a presentation of some type whether it's eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper or on a screen or whatever, what the like, what the cost of the pet is, the care and the maintenance, all of the things. But basically it's practice convincing people to, I think is like that your idea has merit and that you understand some of the ins and outs and that people were doing that for their kids at very early age. And I was like, that is a fascinating approach. And that can be extended into convincing people to like this college club you want to found is a good idea. This can be extended to a sort of my entrepreneurial journey pitching court on like, hey, I've got this idea. Here's what I did in Columbia. Here's a number of photos. Here's my pitch deck. And then getting, you know, skewered with a whole bunch of questions around killing the business. So that's my number two is practice convincing people is a lifelong skill. And you can start it early. You can get into it later, whatnot. For the broader, older audience, my number three is like, and this is where, where my bent comes in on my MO of like, let's bring everybody into climate tech that we possibly can. And a lot of times I feel like that there are people who are, well, like I'm 20 years into my HR career, like how, you know, what would that look like? I need some of those companies to get a little mature before I can like join and support my lifestyle and whatnot. And I think we're now at that place, like 
one of the whether you're accounting, whether you're sales, whether you're policy, whether you're in oil and gas, whether you're in some of those other professions, there's now opportunities. Like for example, in HR, there's a 401k that we just adopted that's with Carbon Collective. They have an ETF that just went on to NASDAQ and it allows people the options of in their 401k to either have the traditional Vanguard, have the Vanguard ESG, or go and divest entirely of oil and gas. Now it takes HR professionals to like, you know, convince other people that like, hey, you can consider these three options, figure out what your risk profile is, et cetera. And that's something that any company can get involved. And there's trillions of dollars in 401k that should be working for climate. There's sales, there's accounting. Accounting, oh man, talk about an opportunity today. Carbon accounting is like the forefront of how we connect natural capital and the exchange of carbon and ecosystems into human financial systems and how, you know, those one of those gears is spinning at like a thousand revolutions per minute. And the other one is like spinning at the speed of like glaciers and connecting those two. How do we connect them so that we're financing and funding some of the ecological restoration? That's carbon offsets and that's deep accounting work. There is like, it's like the heyday of accounting, but I don't think that necessarily people are excited about that or necessarily moving into that at the speed I would like to see them. And so a couple of resources there for people to go on that journey. My climate journey, a Slack community, a lot of people, if you're in oil and gas, I would love to brain drain you and bring you into climate. You have a ton of like valuable expertise in drilling and for geothermal and whatnot. Check out Climate Career Portal and then Climate Base for people who are sort of earlier journey and are looking for like a fellowship, how to get some of those internships in climate. All three of those are valuable resources. And like there are many, 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 many more job boards, et cetera. So those are kind of some of my three things. Yeah, that's awesome. So we are really getting the passion, the entrepreneurial energy. And if I synthesize the, the message from court is about education and travel and the empathy practice, the empathy mindset. Bryce, you're saying, get yourself into new experiences and new places and create for yourself options and build for yourself a rounded set of uh, skills and experiences because when you do that, you will also learn about yourself and when more people will work in what they believe in and what they're passionate about, we'll have a better world. And Grant, you're inviting us into targeted serendipity and targeted learning and these other great messages that we should all come into climate tech because this is where we are changing the future. So with these wonderful and powerful invitations and messages from you. I want to thank you for taking us on this ride. I will have everything in the show notes and people can read about your companies and the change you're leading. Thank you so very much. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.